This is Nick Law, and you're listening to the Hot Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hotforward.beer is a podcast and website dedicated to the beer industry, supporting budding beer entrepreneurs by gaining insights from experienced brewers and folk within the craft beer industry. So grab a glass, pour yourself a beer, and let's get into this week's episode. up your stocking on the wall of course you are because it's christmas oh i wish it could be christmas every day except if you work in the brewing industry because you work your nuts off up until christmas you get a day off and then the day after you've got to check your fermentation profiles and temperatures don't you? At least you should be doing. Only this year, this will be the first year I've not been in the brewery, um, I'm actually getting some time off this Christmas. So I'm going to be eating my Bouche de Noël and I'll be drinking the bottle of Buxton Brewery's Kentucky Woods that has been sitting on my shelf waiting for the big day. Um, And funnily enough, that leads us into today's episode, Seamless. That was absolutely seamless. It doesn't get any more professional than this. So seeing as we're talking about barrel-aged stouts, last week I had the privilege of talking to Josh Knoll. Uh, Josh is a beer writer for the Chicago Tribune, but he's also the author of an absolutely fantastic and fascinating book called Barrel-Aged Stout and Selling Out. It's a book that documents the story of Goose Island and their sale to Anheuser-Busch and talks a lot in that book about uh, big beer and some of the tactics that AB InBev uh, used to acquire um, craft breweries and state their claim in that market. So I just thought it'd be a really good way to end this uh, year with this interview with Josh Knoll. Um, Make sure if you're going to get a Christmas present for yourself... Because let's face it, if you if you turn up with a beer book for most people, <laughs> somebody else that'd be kind of like ah, thanks. That that'll just go with the with the socks. But seriously, if you're thinking about buying a book on beer to, to read over the Christmas period, I would highly recommend Barrel A Start Selling Out. It's not only is it a really fascinating journey. Um, through the Goose Island AB and Bev saga, um, but it's just a very, very well written and insightful book. Um, so, without further ado, let's get into today's episode. My guest on the Hot Four podcast today is Josh Knoll, um, who's a beer writer and author of Barrel Aged Stout Selling Out. Hello, Josh. Hello. Thanks for having me here, Nick. Thanks for being here, mate. You're you're my first international guest. Oh, honoured. I've gone global. I've made it. <laughs> That's it. All the way in Chicago. Absolutely. Why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and who you are, just for some of our listeners that might not be aware of you. Sure. Uh, so I, uh, I I write about the about beer and the beer industry for the Chicago Tribune, uh, which is the large daily newspaper in Chicago, third largest city in the U.S. Uh, and I've been writing about beer for about 10 years here. Uh, and have watched the craft beer industry in the States uh, really blossom from something quite small and niche to something that has 
uh, growing larger literally by the day and more robust and more mainstream. And then um, a few years back, I uh, in 2011, Goose Island, the a renowned Chicago brewery, which I'm sure has a, I believe has a very strong uh, uh, English presence now, um, sold to Anheuser-Busch InBev, the largest beer company in the world. And that uh, was sort of a holy cow moment in Chicago uh, and really across the nation here uh, because the biggest beer company in the world had bought this beloved Chicago craft beer institution. And it struck me that there might be a book in that story. Mm. And there was. And so then I spent the next few years writing a book that came out this summer, summer of 2018, which is called Barrel Age Stout and Selling Out, Goose Island, Anheuser-Busch, and How Craft Beer Became Big Business. So that's that's me, is uh, just keeping an eye on beer in the beer industry for the newspaper and uh, was able to turn it into to a book. So how, how did you get into beer writing? Because I, I see a lot of people online um, through Facebook groups and stuff that, you know, that run beer blogs. And it seems to be in, in the craft beer scene quite a big thing um, for people to write about beer. So how, how did you get into it and, and get to work for a newspaper? Uh, completely by accident, really. Um, I know a lot of the, the bloggers are uh, they're sort of beer writing hobbyists i suppose you'd say which is not a slight at all i mean since they're they're a lot of the engine of uh, uh the conversation around craft beer and a lot of them do an incredible job uh and have a journalistic like professionalism even you know if it's not their their main job uh but i was uh, i i was have always been a journalist first um i've been a professional journalist since the age of 19 um when i uh, college didn't quite work for me. University didn't quite work for me. Uh, I ended up going back. But uh, point is, is I left before I'd graduated and began uh, writing for a small newspaper in Arizona uh, as a news writer. And I wrote about education. I wrote a lot about um, crime and violence, you know, and unfortunately, an ever persistent issue, no, pretty much no matter where you go in the United mm. States. Um, and I was a news writer for uh, 15 years of my career. Uh, I became the travel writer at the Chicago Tribune. Um, sort of it, it, the travel writing job came open. I'd never thought about being a travel writer, but the job was open. And I thought, well, who wouldn't want to be a travel writer? That sounds fun. Uh, and I miraculously, I, I applied for the job and miraculously got the job. And travel wound up being under the same broad umbrella as food and beverage writing at the Tribune, just the sort of the features department. And the beer industry in Chicago, you know, there were maybe eight breweries in Chicago uh, in 2009 or so when the food editor said, hey, when you're not traveling for your travel writing job, would you mind just keeping an eye on what's going on with beer here in Chicago and, and more broadly, and maybe you can write a story for me about it every once in a while. And I said, sure, you know, even more fun than being the travel writer would be being the travel writer and doing a little beer writing too. Uh, and he knew that I was interested in beer and had some knowledge of it. And, uh, just he, I was just the, the obvious fit to just sort of keep an eye on beer and as time went on, uh, the beer industry just grew and grew and grew and became more fascinating and, uh, you know, both as a cultural story and as a business story. And uh, eventually, um, 
you know, the, the fortunes of newspapers have changed fairly radically. So uh, it, it worked out for me in that the travel writing gig sort of went away over the course of eight years. Uh, but as tra- the, the budget for travel, traveling and travel writing at the Chicago Tribune wound down, the beer industry was ramping up. So just slowly, the job shifted from travel to beer ever more so. And then uh, ultimately, I just became full-time beer writer. So that that's a, a long way of answering your question. But the answer is it was never really planned. Um, it's just sort of right, right place, right time. Uh, right industry, but I've always approached it. I, I never set out to to be a beer writer. It was just I was a journalist, and beer was a story that needed to be covered. And now, as I just reported this week, Chicago has uh, 167 breweries, which makes Chicago home to more breweries than any other place in the United States. Wow, that's which, amazing! It's remarkable. Yeah, everyone's sort of still wrapping their head around it. Gosh. Denver, Seattle, Portland. Um, San Diego, those places were always the the beer meccas in the United States. Mm. Uh, but just in the last five years, the growth has been so explosive everywhere, but obviously, especially in Chicago. And now Chicago has this claim to um, the top top brewing city in the United States. Wow, and, that's uh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. So I was just lucky that I was, you know, had the chance to sort of chronicle that rise. And, and the Tribune has been incredibly supportive. That's interesting because um, there was a report a few years ago about Sheffield where that Sheffield has more breweries per capita than any other um, city in the UK. Um, you know, there's and I, I, so I always thought um, running a brewery, oh man, it's, it's really tough in Sheffield because there is so there's so much beer here. Um, but I mean, it must be unprecedented in in somewhere like Chicago and the sort of surrounding areas. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely a change. Um, and to be fair, I mean, people argue, and I think it's a, it's really a good argument that probably the more important metric in some ways is per capita. And Chicago still trails Portland, Oregon, for instance, by a ton in terms of per capita. Because yeah. Portland, a far, far smaller city, and only has, um, you know, twenty or thirty fewer breweries. Um, that said, yeah, the uh, the whole number of Chicago now having more breweries than any other city just, you know, it's it's, it's meaningful too, obviously, and speaks for itself. And it ha- I mean, Chicago has just embraced beer culture. And the crazy thing is, is that, you know, wh- where's it going to go? Uh, people talk all the time about, is there a bubble? Is there going to be, is there oversaturation? Is there a regression due to come? Uh, and I, you know, I mean, there's going to be some regression, but there's also st- the growth is still outpacing the, well, I shouldn't say there's regression. There's, there are breweries closing that aren't making good enough beer or don't have a very compelling brand or aren't mm. well financed. That's really the big thing probably. Um, and they're going to go away, but breweries are still opening like crazy. So, you know, where's it going? Where's it going to be in another 10 years? Yeah. That's the wild thing. Well, I was talking to um, Jonathan from uh, Jay Wakefield Brewing um, mm. at a beer festival in the UK in November, and he was saying there's over 7,000 breweries in America at the minute. Correct. Um, and he was saying the problem that you guys have got is that you've got more breweries opening, but um, still the same amount of places to dispense that beer. Um, yeah, well, let me say, following up on what the Jay Wakefield fellow said, is that that is an issue, that there there's more breweries but not more necessarily more places to to pour the beer or sell the beer there are more more people are opening 
boutique beer stores, uh, which is great. Uh, but the, the reason that the, the growth has been supported and I think can continue to be supported is uh, tap rooms have become an engine of craft beer in the, in the U.S. And that's, I mean, any, any brewery that's opening now is going to have a tap room. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they're able to pour the beer themselves and keep all the profit and sort of build their, their own, uh, you know, their own operation to, to both make and sell the beer directly, then that's what allows, uh, for that, the continued growth. But as far as wanting to get on shelves, uh, and competing to get on taps, uh, especially at the larger volume accounts like chain restaurants or things like that, that's real tough. So that's where I, I would say, uh, that Jay Wakefield fellow is, is obviously, I mean, he knows exactly what he's talking about. I'm not questioning him. I'm just adding another layer yeah, to totally. it, which is tap rooms are, have been a godsend for the craft beer industry in the U S but yeah, competing out in the market is that's, that's tricky. And that does tie into the book. Um, so yeah, the background on the book is, um, it's really, it's, it's rooted in, in, in Goose Island sale, Dan Heiser Bush, um, so the, the book is divided into, it's basically in two parts. Um, the title is barrel aged stout and selling out. Uh, and that part one is barrel aged stout, which is, uh, really a, a metaphor for the innovation that craft beer brought to, uh, American beer drinkers, you know, for generations and generations, we were people, we were just Bud and, and Miller and Coors mm-hmm. and just all, you know, pretty bland, light adjunct lagers that all pretty much tasted the same and did the, you know, offered the same experience for the consumer that were less about the beer, more about the advertising uh, and the marketing and things like that. And that the sports athletic sponsorships and things like that. And craft beer grew in opposition to that. And the greatest example arguably is uh, when Goose Island put a Russian Imperial stout in a bourbon barrel to age for three months uh, back in the mid nineties and obviously bourbon barrel aged stout is now quite common, uh, everywhere. Any ambitious brewery is probably going to, uh, make a version of it. Uh, and goose Island was first. So goose Island was a great subject in terms of what it meant as a craft brewery, what it meant for innovation. And, um, it, it sort of told the broader story of craft beer in the United States that story became a lot more complicated when Goose Island sold to Anheuser-Busch. So then the second half of the book, so the midpoint of, of the book of the narrative is the sale to Anheuser-Busch, uh, on, in March of 2011. And then the second half of the book is, uh, selling out and it explores Goose Island in Anheuser-Busch's hands, what Goose Island's motivations were for the sale, how the sale came together and arguably most important of all, what Anheuser-Busch's motivations uh, were for the sale. Uh, and lucky for me, Goose Island wound up not being the only acquisition for Anheuser-Busch, uh, in the craft beer realm. They went on to buy nine more U S craft breweries in what wound up being a very aggressive strategy to become the nation's dominant craft beer company. And in seven, eight years, as I've written in the Chicago Tribune, Anheuser-Busch has gone from making zero, absolutely no, what I would consider uh, credible craft beer, um, 
to being the largest craft beer country, uh, uh, company in the nation. And obviously they've exported that strategy now around the globe. They've bought, they've bought in England, they've bought in Italy, they've bought in Belgium and Korea and China and South America. And, um, they're, you know, Anheuser-Busch has come in Bev Anheuser-Busch and Bev has come to realize the, uh, the importance of craft beer and how tastes have changed and fragmented and, uh, they need to, they need to keep up. And it all started with that Goose Island sale. So the book ends up telling all that story. Uh, but the Goose Island sale was sort of the spark that, 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 uh, ignited the blaze, if you will. I mean, I, I, I thought it was a fantastic book. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd never heard of it until, um, I saw a tweet from Pete Brown, who's a renowned British beer writer, uh, mm. part of the um, British Guild of Beer Writers and it, it was mm-hmm. uh, Barrel Aged Out Selling Out was um, won the award of the the best um, beer book that this year and um, I read it I, I was like fascinating eye-opening open, eye account um, why did you think writing about um, AB InBev and Goose Island and Big Beer's buyout of indie brewers was, was important to document? Uh, well first thanks for the kind words and uh, second, because we are seeing an industry uh, transformed before our eyes almost in real time. And the uh, the corners that are of the industry that are that are changing craft beer, meaning you know Anheuser-Busch InBev and Heineken and the like, um, they don't you know, they don't really want us to see that. They just want to buy these breweries and, and blend in and carry on as if nothing happened while they're, you know, taking their seat at the table in an industry that had been really rooted in uh, innovation and collaboration and as an alternative to those big beer companies. Uh, and they, it, you know, the, a threat was established to the big beer companies and they needed to buy their way in. Um and it's just it's a it's uh it's just been an, a pretty remarkable evolution and transformation of an industry and it's just it's happened in such a, a narrow window of time uh and again it's you know the big beer companies for reasons that make complete sense uh from a business perspective they they're trying to downplay all that as much as possible and you know as a journalist um it's my job to help shed light, you know, for the reader, for the, the consumer. Mm. Um, and this, and that this story hadn't really been told. It'd been told in, you know, a thousand newspaper articles, uh, and magazine articles and things like that. But it was clear that there was, you know, there was a beginning, a middle and an end to the narrative of, uh, craft beer is established as this alternative to big beer. It is flavor. It is innovation. It is, uh, it's boldness. It's, you know, it's delicious. Uh, big beer senses a threat and big beer does what big beer, what any big company does when threatened is it, it, uh, opens its, its checkbook and, and, uh, and acquires the thing that is threatening it. So there was, there was a full story to be told. I mean, the story is still certainly unfolding. Uh, but you know, by 2017 or so it's, you know, they're, the first act of the story had definitely sort of been established yeah. and, uh, and yeah, the, and the book was, was there to be written and people have, you know, when you, when you do some undertake a project like this, you have no idea what, 
reaction is going to be, of course. And are you spending all this time and, you know, <laughs> for any good outcome? Uh, but it, the, the, the book has really resonated. I've been really fortunate and I'm appreciative and it's people, you know, just care so deeply about, uh, beer and especially craft beer far more than they do about most consumer, uh, consumer packaged goods. You know, we don't care about crackers in the same way that we care about beer. As a result, people have just sort of embraced the story. It's like they wanted the story to be told, you know? It's funny you should say that because earlier this year, um, Beavertown, which is a large UK craft brewery, really highly regarded, um, announced uh, that they were selling a minority state, which turned out to be 49% to Heineken. And right. after, That's uh, Robert Plant's kid, right? It is, yeah, Logan Plant. And, and when, yeah, I love that. When, when that went live, um, beer Twitter literally, it's like, it, like it broke the internet. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, people just totally lost their shit online about it. And then uh, there were boycotts of Beavertown Extravaganza from um, a lot of well-known and respected breweries, both in the UK and abroad, um, pulled out of that event. Interestingly, though, four weeks later, uh, Four Pure, who are a large London-based brewery, sold the entire company to an Australian company called Lion, and hardly anyone mm. batted an eyelid. So mm, yeah. wh- why do you think that the reaction was so extreme to breweries like Goose Island or Camden Town, it happened to them, or Wicked Weed and, and Beavertown, when, when they're being bought out or receiving large stakes from multinationals. Um, wh- why do you think people have that kind of um, passion about it? Like, like say, you know, if, if, if Vitties or someone who sells crackers, um, you know, Ritz sold... Uh, yeah, you know, what, you know what I'm trying to yeah, say. Yeah, like, you know, yeah. s- like some the, independent the, cracker maker sold that to it's Jacob's crackers. To Ritz. Yeah, yeah, no you know. one would really care. Yeah. Um, uh, no, well, actually, you raise a really good point that it's people care not just about um, what is selling, but also who is acquiring. Mm. There's definitely that is definitely an important wrinkle to the whole thing. Um, uh, you know, in in the U.S., Heineken is not quite the well, it's not even remotely the big bad bully that uh, Anheuser-Busch is. So selling, there have been a number of breweries here that have sold minority stakes to Heineken via uh, Lagunitas, because that's yeah. obviously Heineken bought 100% of Lagunitas. Um, and so, you know, that's the the filter through which these other companies are selling to Heineken. And people will grumble for a couple minutes Shorts is a well-regarded brewery in Michigan, um, and they sold, I want to say it was 25% or so to Heineken uh, via Lagunitas. And yeah, people grumbled for a minute and then just sort of got on with their lives. But, you know, uh, all sales are not equal. So yeah, selling to Anheuser-Busch means something very different here and uh, than selling to Heineken. And I would imagine that selling to Heineken there, even a minority stake, means something very different than it does here. Uh, and it, that's just the, you know, the relationship that I guess the big beer company has to the market wherever the deal is going down. Mm. Um, and, you know, selling to Miller here is really, again, you'll, you'll get some grumbles for sure and some cries of sellout. And, you know, there'll be some heat around it. But there's really nothing, quote unquote, worse in the United States than selling to Anheuser-Busch right. InBev. <laughs> right. And that's because Anheuser-Busch, uh, you know, well before it was Anheuser-Busch InBev, ha- it has been 
America's beer bully for generations. And there's just no two ways about that. And that became a very important part of, uh, uh, of something to chronicle in the book because it was part of the story. Well, why is selling Danheuser-Busch met with such rage and disdain? And that was a question I had to uh, come to understand fully and then answer for the reader. Mm. And so that that's a big part of it. It's, you know, that the craft beer and the big beer stories run parallel for 20, 30 or so years before they intersect. Um, and yeah, there's, there's this, it's just this intangible thing that people love so much about beer and it's cool. I mean, that's what makes writing about beer fun and drinking beer fun and going to tap rooms fun is it's just, it's a more, it's just such a an intimate um, experience. And it is an experience, you know, in a way that crackers are not, you go to the tap room, you drink the beer right where it was made, you know, it's fresh. You're having a, you're looking at the equipment where it was made. Uh, you're talking quite possibly to the person who made the beer. You're going on a tour of where it was made again, perhaps led by the brewer who made the beer. It's just, it's just, uh, craft beer presented, uh, in a remarkable alternative to big beer and granted an incredible experience that was also an alternative to big beer. Hmm. And yeah, when that, when I think when a craft brewery sells, it's, uh, you know, craft, craft breweries, uh, are built and thrive on a relationship with the customer, uh, not, advertising, not marketing. I mean, you know, yes, of course there's some marketing involved, but you know, uh, Anheuser-Busch is basically all, all marketing, all advertising. Craft beer is the alternative to that. And once, you know, craft beer is built on, a brand is built on that relationship with the customer. And then they sort of cash, cash in the relationship for money and, uh, join, join the thing that they were the alternative to. And it's just, you know, it's, on one hand, it's, you know, yeah, it's just beer. Come on, lighten up. But on another, I think uh, it makes all the sense in the world. And the people who really care have every right in the world to care as much as they do. Do you think there's a, a danger for um, some of the sort of rising stars within the beer scene um, to, like like in some ways, like with Be The Town, that their sort of fall from grace almost was the fact that the year before, this happened logan plant at their extravaganza partnered with good beer hunting and had sort of um publicly uh, renounced um big beer and as you know just yellow fizz and all the rest of it you know and, and sort of their manifesto is like you know we're independent we're going to take them and then it's kind of like uh you know come back cap in hand the next year oh, we learned some big mistakes and actually partnering with them was really you know the right thing and um, in in a similar way that when Brewdog, who are the largest um, UK independent craft brewery, they they sold a twenty two percent stake of their company to to a private equity house, um, <clears throat> who gave them a two hundred thirty million pound cash injection. Now th- there was backlash from it, not not to the same degree as are oh, you sold out, because in in some ways it it, it appeared to some that. James Watson, Martin Dickey, who are the CEOs of BrewDog, had already sort of sold out by by the fact that when they launched BrewDog, it was all like punks and yeah, beer for punks and all the rest of it. But, um, you know, they've, they've become everything that they set out not to be 
in a lot of ways, or, or pe- that's how people sort of perceive them. Do, do you think there's a danger then with, with some of these rising breweries that uh, if they sort of shoot their mouth off, as it were, um, about their independence, that, they, you know, through their popularity, they're, they're on walking a very dangerous line if they need to raise that capital from somewhere to, you know, to get their, take their brewery to new stratospheres. Yeah, I think they, it, it's the old never say never. Uh you know, you, you, it's a dynamic industry. You never know what's going to happen. I sure admire the people who wear their uh, their ethos and their ethics and their politics on their sleeves. Um, and I think that's sort of, you know, one one cool thing about building a brand um, is that, that that becomes what the brand is. And that's who you are and that's what your customers are buying. Uh, but, yeah, craft beer has been very a very dynamic industry. And. I would never want to assume that Logan plant was being that calculating when he said that. Um, but I, I wonder how long it took him to, uh, to regret saying it. He realized, Oh dear, uh, maybe, uh, maybe we do have to do something different here. And maybe, uh, you know, those words of not that long ago don't are no longer compatible with my vision for this brewery. And it's, you know, someone walked up to me and offered me $250 million. (laughs) I'm not sure what I'd do. Um, But, uh, yeah, so there are there are pitfalls. Um, But that said, there are plenty of people who would just never sell their brewery. At least I, you know, I mean, until they do it. But but there are people who I'm convinced would never, ever, ever sell to. Heineken or Anheuser-Busch or Miller Coors because they just do fundamentally believe in it. But then again, you know, Logan said what he said and Tony McGee of Lagunitas said it's in the book. I can't remember the exact quote, but something along the lines of when you sell your brewery, you're, you know, selling out all your friends and your employees and their futures and something like that. And then, yeah, he sold to Heineken. So it's, it's, you know, it's not, uh, oh, and there, another example is Breckenridge Brewery in, uh, in Colorado. Um, he went on the record and complained about uh, the the brewery selling to Anheuser Busch, and less than a year later, he sold to Anheuser Busch. So, yeah, there's there's there are many examples, and it's it's uh, it's a complicated equation um, that yeah probably deserves some disdain, but also I think deserves some sympathy too because mm-hmm. it's just there's certain realities of being a business owner and. Um, you know, unless, you know, we're not on the inside, so we don't completely fully understand. But that said, we also control our, our shopping choices. And I give all the respect to anyone who makes informed and deliberate shopping choices and chooses not to buy uh, the beer of a company that they no longer wish to support. And if someone, you know, obviously wants to keep buying Beaver Town or Lagunitas or Legion or Goose Island, then good for them. I just hope that it's an informed decision and they just understand the full context. And then, you know, then do what you will. Well, that, that leads nicely into a question that I had about how can consumers differentiate between craft beer and big beer? If you go into like a specialty bottle shop, you know, the, the, the owner is going to tell you what's what. Um, but if you go into a supermarket, it's not always that clear. And um, I mean, I would imagine... Some customers don't care where you know where the beer comes from, um, but so, so, some customers do care where the beer comes from. Um, but if if they're not as as educated, and you know you presented with a, a a can that looks that looks like it's you know an independent um, brewery, 
that's got its beer in Tesco or um, Walmart or wherever. Um, but then, you know, they, they take it home and then they see on the back that it was brewed by AB InBev or Molson Coors or, you know, um, how, how can consumers, how do they navigate that sort of terrain if they, if they want to sort of stay true to supporting independent businesses? Well, that, that's a tough thing. And in the States, at least, uh, it does not say on the bottle or can made by Anheuser-Busch InBev. Um, they're, they're being sneaky. There's no two ways about it. Um, you have to know how to read the label to tell whether that Goose Island beer in your hand was made in Chicago or made by Anheuser-Busch InBev. Um, and again, there's not only, even the beers made in Chicago then, uh, there's absolutely no way to know that the brand is owned by Anheuser-Busch InBev. And that's true of all 10 of the Anheuser-Busch InBev acquisitions. Mm. Um, and you raise a great question, which is, uh, about consumers caring. And it's, I, I honestly truly do not know the answer. I would love to know the answer. Uh, I, I, in addition to the Tribune, I also do some blogging at my website, uh, which is joshnoll.net. Um, uh, I don't blog a ton, but I just sort of pick up major issues, uh, usually things in the book and just sort of expand on them as you know, news arises or there's a new development or something. Um, and w one of the subjects that I really stay pretty focused on is, uh, transparency with the consumer, which mm. let's be honest, the big beer companies are horrible at when it comes to craft. And again, it makes sense to me for business reasons, but, um, it is not good for the consumer. I don't think it prevents them from making informed decisions. Uh, and then things like, uh, I just wrote about recently the illusion of choice, which is when someone's standing looking at a menu and they see, oh, here's these 16 different beer brands. What the consumer is not meant to realize is that those 16 different beer brands are all Anheuser-Busch acquisitions or, you know, it could be Heineken, it could be Miller, it could be anyone, but Anheuser-Busch at least here is, uh, the biggest of the big mm. by a long shot. Um, so, the, you know, sometimes the Anheuser-Busch people come at me privately and they say, why do you keep harping on this? No one cares. No one cares. They insist that no one cares who owns the beer. Um, and the Brewers Association, which is the, the major craft beer trade group here in the U.S., based in Colorado, they insist, of course, consumers care. And we have this survey and this data that proves it. Um, so I don't, I don't know which is, which is true. Um, but I am of the opinion that, uh, consumers, uh, probably don't have anywhere near enough, uh, transparency and, and accurate information about who owns the beer that is available to them, who makes the beer that is available to them. Um, and my, uh, you know, I see my role as a journalist uh, and an author is to help bring some transparency to that equation. And then again, I don't, people, I don't care what people buy, buy nothing but Anheuser-Busch if you want, or don't buy any Anheuser-Busch if you want. It's just to me, I think the important issue and the role that I can help play in my, uh, my writing, uh, is just providing transparency and context. And then the consumer can make an informed decision. And ideally we'd all do that on everything we buy forever. Mm. Right. Um, but it's hard, it's hard to be 
a purist, you know? Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't write about clothes. I don't write about phones or technology. Um, I don't write about home appliances and those are all, you know, quite, uh, arguably more important than beer, but beer is the thing that I write about. And so I, you know, it's, I think it's important, uh, to try to just, you know, shine, shine the sunlight on, on some of those dark corners of the industry. And then hopefully people can, uh, make, you know, informed and educated decisions one way or the other. And how can they do that? I guess, you know, read what I write, read what other, I mean, there's so much good insightful beer writing going on now is, you know, the industry has grown, the writing about it obviously has grown and there's just, uh, uh, yeah, just find those people on social media and read, read their stuff and just, yeah, just keep, we should all, all need to keep educating ourselves. Mm. Why do you think it's so bad for breweries to sell out to big beer? I mean, you, you kind of allude to, you know, um, Anheuser Bush being, you know, the, the big bully, um, in the States and I'd probably argue anywhere, in, <laughs> anywhere in the world that sells beer. Um, yeah, that's but, probably safe. I mean, they're such a big company now. But what, 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 why, why is it so bad? Well, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say it's bad, um, but it is impactful. It is meaningful. Um, and even that is something that I think they're, everyone is, you know, Anheuser-Busch and the company selling to them are trying to tamp down. They always trot out the same niceties with the sale, which is nothing's going to change. This will just, uh, this sale will just allow us to grow. We're still going to be the same company. We're still going to make the same great beer. Our beer will get even better now. Just, you know, basically don't, don't think about it. Don't worry about it. Just think about the beer in your glass. Um, and it is very meaningful to sell to Anheuser-Busch InBev. And, you know, the, really where it's unfolding in the United States is on the distribution tier of how we, you know, how beer gets into our glass, which is um, choice is Anheuser-Busch is able to use these brands to restrict choice in a very quiet way that most consumers can't recognize. Um, and again, this is something that, became a crucial part of writing the book um, and is something that I continue to keep up with on on my blog. Uh, and I write about it some at the Tribune too. Um, so plenty of people will use the word bad to describe a sale to Anheuser-Busch, but I, you know, I don't want to categorize it that way. And I, you know, the, uh, again, a brewery owner who suddenly offered $250 million. I'm just making that number up, but you know, so somewhere from 50 to a few hundred million dollars for their business. It's hard to blame them, you know? Yeah. Um, and Anheuser-Busch has real needs as a $250 billion corporation, uh, with a bunch of stockholders to answer to. They have real needs that they're solving this way in this way with these acquisitions. Um, and, but there are real world results that impact uh, small businesses. You know, the 6,900 breweries in the U.S. that are small businesses. Um, and those deserve consideration in the discussion, you know. What, what, what do you think sets apart large breweries like Sierra Nevada or Boston Beer Company who, who have somehow managed to grow um, to, to a very large size and, and sell their beers internationally um, while still managing to re- retain their independence? Like, how have they managed to do that? Why have they not sort of decided, well, actually, you know, we, we could sell our businesses and, 
you know, cash in or chips or partner with Heineken and Molson Coors or Anheuser-Busch or whoever, um, you know, and, and get our beer further afield. We want world domination. Um, you know, you've got these very large breweries that are, are just, you know, they're, they're still fiercely independent. Um, mm-hmm. You know, why do you think that is? Well, they both those breweries you cite, as well as Bell's and Dogfish Head and Stone, um, some of those larger American craft breweries, they had the advantage of uh, building their companies before Anheuser-Busch really got involved. Hmm. Um, so they were able to grow to the level that they were or are. Um, when there was still a fairly level landscape, uh, Boston beer actually, uh, sort of echoes big beer in certain ways. Boston beer is, uh, they've got, they've got some sharp elbows and always have. Um, but it has also maintained its, uh, sort of independent credibility at the same time. Um, it's a lot harder for breweries now to do. To do that, I mean, if you start a brewery in the U.S. in 2018, 2019, with the goal of becoming the next uh, Sierra Nevada, good luck to you. It's not going to happen. Sierra Nevada just had, you know, that head start. They started in 1979. Yeah. And and also reflects, I think, a, a pretty real ethos that craft beer as a whole embodies, which is independence, which is family, which is small business, even though it's now obviously a large business worth supposedly worth a billion dollars. I mean, I'm sure it is at this point. Um, but you know, Ken Grossman who founded Sierra Nevada back in the late seventies, he and Larry Bell who started Bell's brewery in Michigan in the eighties, these were guys who, were young scruffy dudes who liked homebrewing didn't like bud or schlitz or Coors or miller or whatever and they wanted to just make you know bring variety and flavor and choice to the american or you not even the american beer consumer to the like the people you know in their little towns mm. and then were able to grow their business and they they came at it really with a uh, a small business mentality and, uh, uh, and, and that translated to them passing their businesses on to their kids that, that became the next generation for those guys in those businesses. Uh, whereas goose Island was started by John Hall in his mid forties after a career as a white collar executive. And he just sort of went into it with a different strategy and different ethos and uh, selling to Anheuser-Busch. I guess as we, just as we r- round this all together, uh, n- knowing everything you know about big beer and the craft beer industry, what advice would you give to um, breweries out there, particularly m- maybe some breweries and businesses that might be listed to this that are, um, you know, either have been approached about being acquired or you know seeking for um investment and and possibly looking to partner with um you know venture capitalists or 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 big beer what would you sort of say if you could kind of sit down with the next rising star and you know look into the whites of their eyes and, and give them one piece of advice about all this uh 
this probably sounds uh, horrifically uh, self-promotional. Uh, I would say read my book. <laughs> and, and I don't I don't I uh, because it's you know, I my role as a journalist is, you know, that that's my advice is it's in it's in in the book. Um, you know, I, I've I'm uh, I pretty uh, ardently stick to the journalist role. So it'd be hard for me to give uh, some actual advice because, you know, I'll leave that for the consultants, um, which is, you know a very, uh, important job these days in a very dynamic craft beer industry. But I feel like everything I've gleaned and learned is, is in that book. Um, so you know what, if, if in case I was too self-promotional, feel free to take it out of the library. That's perfectly fine. There you go. Where, where can, where can people buy your book? Oh, it's, you know, it's on Amazon and the usual spots. I, I always, uh, urge people to buy it from their, uh, you know, local independent bookstore if they can. Um, I guess you can read between the lines there about how I feel about all of it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know what, we live in an Amazon world, so that's, you know, it's, it's there too. Brilliant. And, um, your website again was, what was jo- Josh? Uh, Josh Noel, J O S H N O E L dot net. Uh, and you can also, uh, check me, check out my work at the Chicago Tribune and I'm on Twitter at Hopnotes, H-O-P-N-O-T-E-S, which is a uh, very, very inside joke, but uh, you'll have to read the book to find out the reference. But <laughs> there you it, go. It, uh, yeah, it's. <laughs> I, I was proud when I was able to, to grab that handle. I'll put it that <laughs> way. Brilliant. Thank you, Josh Noel. Well, that's it for the Hot Four podcast this year. We'll be taking a short break over the festive period, but returning in the new year with brand new episodes of the podcast and a shiny new website featuring articles to help you get ahead in your beer business, as well as a range of services and consulting to help you build your brands, your brewery and your business. So until then, have a very hoppy Christmas and a beery happy new year. See what I did there.